WBZ original. I dated a girl from Brookline one time and met her parents and went to see the house and thought, I'm nowhere even in the same stratosphere as this family. It was one of those winding oh, yeah. roads up to a yeah. castle. Yeah. And I thought, boy, this is not going to work. To the, in- to the intense yeah. relief of those parents. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome into this week's edition of Studio BZ. We're at Season 3, Episode 7, and we're so glad you're along with us. I'm Al- Paula Evans. Alston's number one podcast, Alston's by the way. They're just, just named. Alston's number one who, podcast. Who's right? Yeah. Who has named that? That's uh, awesome. I'm not sure who we named us that. a source on that? No, it says it in quotation we're marks. We're just so saying. What are they? will be someone credible, I'm sure. Alston's they survey the, the counter crowd, a twin donut or something? <laughs> yeah, Kiki's quick mark. <laughs> anyway, it That's says right. here we're Alston's number one podcast. Facts are facts, and that is that. I'm Liam Martin. Facts are facts. And I'm John Keller. Good to see you, Paul and Liam. And we're here to talk about what's coming up on this week's show. Yep. John, we start with you. Yeah, Attorney General Maura Healy came by last week to talk with us. Fascinating person, uh, very opinionated, very candid in our interview, laying out the horror uh, that is emerging, at least the alleged horrors that are emerging from her lawsuit against the pharmaceutical company that uh, gifted us with OxyContin, uh, and also talking about oh, when and if it might become necessary to rein in tech companies. Interesting stuff with the Attorney General of Massachusetts. And Facebook, of course, just opening a new office in Cambridge. So very interesting on that uh, front. MedFlight needs your help. If you've watched the news at at any point in your life, you've probably seen MedFlight helicopters saving lives. We had the CEO of this organization on to talk about how exactly it was formed. It has a financial model that you would not expect and the help that they need from the public. And then if you follow sports at all, you're probably uh, familiar with Michael McCann. Mm-hmm. He's a law professor at the University of New Hampshire. Made right? his name during Deflategate. Yeah, right. He taught a, has, is still teaching a course in Deflategate and the, the legal and ethical issues raised by that whole fiasco. He also is a regular columnist for Sports Illustrated. And when he came in to chat with us recently, we talked about legal betting. They already have it now in Rhode Island. I guarantee it's coming sooner or later here to Massachusetts. How that's going to change the sports experience and what are some of the potential pitfalls of legal sports betting with Mike McCann. And last but certainly not least, Conan O'Brien versus the Dreamland Wax Museum. And we're going to get even with him we're a little gonna, later. We will. Attorney General Maura Healey is now in her second term as the top law enforcement official in Massachusetts, and she is widely regarded as one of the most important and powerful political figures uh, in the Democratic Party in Massachusetts. She was talked about as a possible gubernatorial candidate, chose not to challenge Shirley Baker, but uh, what's up uh, in the coming years for her? Well, she's got her platter full of significant issues, and we had a chance to kick back and talk with her at some length about one of the um, high-profile lawsuits she's engaged in right now and a forthcoming battle with some of America's biggest corporations. The answer is more technology. More and better. More and better. better. Are you glad you didn't run for governor? I love being attorney general. I'm really um, honored to have been reelected and to have the opportunity to work with my team for another four years and try to help people across the state. It's a great job. You know, every day, John, we take calls from folks who are looking for help, 
accessing health insurance. They have trouble with a car loan. They may be behind in the subject of you know, really illegal, unlawful actions by debt collectors. We're out there with an opportunity to enforce laws that protect civil rights and the environment and workers' rights. And it's a great position from which to try to help people with day-to-day needs, day-to-day problems. Um, As I look ahead, the focus of my office will continue to be on issues of addiction and substance use disorder. We've got a pretty extensive um, amount of work related to our ongoing investigations of opioid manufacturers and distributors, including Purdue Pharma. But it's a it's a great office, and I feel really lucky to to work with the people that I've uh, worked with and want to continue to do that the next four years. I don't know how you would possibly quantify this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, is our culture, the corporate culture, the greed culture, the uh, the con- the very concept of it's okay to exploit workers, to exploit seniors, to rip off people, is that culture better than it used to be, worse than ever, or pretty much the same? I, I guess I'm, well, I'm talking about basic human nature here, but you certainly have a front row seat for this parade of horrible behavior. We do, and it's really important that an office like mine exists to be there for the little guy, to be the watchdog, to hold those accountable who need to be held accountable. I think a historian could better articulate a view and provide perspective about Well, you've been at this for a while, though. But I'll tell you, you know, it has always been the case that um, in our um, capitalist society, there are any number of people who are looking to take advantage of and make as much money as they can. Sometimes, though not always, of course, sometimes at the expense of and through the exploitation of others. It's great to go out and make money, build a business, run a business, grow. What's not okay is when you're doing so in a way that's illegal and that violates rights that exist on our books for protecting privacy and consumers, um, access to healthcare information, protects workers in their work in their workspace. And that's where we come in as an office. And I'm proud of the work that we've done. We've handled you know, thousands of cases over the last uh, few years, tens of thousands of calls and individual responses to, to people who are looking for help from our office. We've recovered, you know, just last year alone, just under a billion dollars for taxpayers in the state. And so there are a lot of different ways that we can, can work, but certainly curbing exploitive illegal corporate excess remains something that has to be, should be, the top priority of any AG. All the hard work you do, all the cases you bring, do you think they act as a broad deterrent to exploitation and the kind of crime you prosecute? I sure hope they do. You know, when we go after those who are ripping off our Medicaid fraud system by, you know, submitting false bills... Um, you know, I think that sends an important message to those out in the industry. Don't do that. We've been really aggressive taking on bad debt collectors, student loan servicers who weren't playing by the rules, for-profit colleges who were marketing to vulnerable students here in the state. I think we've established a pretty successful track record there, and I think the message is out to the industry. Don't come to Massachusetts and play games like that. Don't exploit our people. We'll take you on. We'll hold you accountable. Because, not to get too esoteric here, but it's this whole concept of shame. Shame is a great social break, a break on bad behavior. And if you look around, and I'm, I'm hardly the first one to suggest that, you know, shamelessness is epidemic in our culture. Look at the, look at the White House. 
look at the popular culture, um, even down to the level of alleged fans throwing full beers at our sports heroes as they roll by on the duck boats, uh, and their buddies think it's funny. Uh, on the other hand, you look at the Me Too movement and a lot of the sort of online shaming that goes on, and you think to yourself, gee, is shame making a comeback? What do you think? You have a good, again, a front row seat on a lot of shameful behavior. I, no, I sure do. <laughs> um, I sure do, unfortunately. But I'll tell you, I think there's an important role in calling things out, in getting to the truth, in exposing facts, in telling a story of what happened. That both is a way to make sure that there is accountability. It's a way to also make sure that going forward, the right policies and practices are in place and that we are aspiring to our best values. I think about the the rise of uh, women in particular and their voices. So important that more women are in boardrooms, CEOs, in office at all levels, because for far too long, they haven't been adequately represented, and when there is not adequate representation, you do not get policies that best serve the population. Do women bring a higher moral quotient to those venues? Uh, what, I, what I do think is important is women are bringing their perspective, their experience. I was so upset, galled a few years ago, when that picture came out. This is the early days of the Trump-Pence administration, when it was a bunch of men standing around a table figuring out what they were going to do with women's access to reproductive health care. Not a woman in the room. If you don't have women at the, in the room at the table, consideration of their perspective, their experience, is just not going to be accounted for in the way that it needs to be accounted for. I also think, my personal experience, is that women have an ability to work together, um, and to work well together, even across party lines, with less divisiveness, less rancor. Um, and I think it's really, really important that women are in, in, in office and have been elected to office in record numbers the last couple of years. A lot of pain, a lot of pain, particularly since November 2016. And the whole election and, and what was um, ex- exposed and, you know, everything from uh, Trump and the tape on through the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. It's been a trying and painful time for many women. And I think to me, a silver lining absolutely has been the rise in women's voices as evidenced by uh, most recently the record number of women elected to Congress. Your lawsuit against Purdue Pharma, the uh, um, originators of OxyContin, contains just some devastating, shameful allegations of knowing about the human carnage the products were causing and not hesitating to amp up the promotion and and hide what was going on, even with that knowledge. Is that the most shameful behavior you've ever encountered professionally? Well, it's certainly uh, very troubling behavior, uh, incredibly upsetting. We started investigating this company years ago, and based on that extensive investigation and the review of millions of pages of Purdue documents, company documents, emails and memos to their board um, and and among their board and and executives, that's what we've laid out in this complaint, which I think is, uh, is really important to detail based on our investigation 
what this company was up to. 70 million doses of OxyContin since 2007 alone, just here in Massachusetts, 150,000 doctor's visits. This is um, a, uh, a company that was the subject of criminal prosecution back in 2007. And what we've done in our investigation is focus on what they and their executives have done since that time. And the allegations we, we make are essentially that this was a company that continued to aggressively and illegally market and sell with the goal of as many doses of opioids as possible at as high a dose as possible to as many people as possible. Is this the most outraged you've ever been by a case? It's hard to have spent so much time over the last five years with so many people who've lost their kids, their parents. I meet so many grandparents who are raising grandchildren right now. I see the toll on our first responders and our emergency rooms and our mental health services and social service providers to sit with parents in particular and family members. And you know, some of them, many of them have lost loved ones. Many more, many, many more are currently dealing in the throes of addiction and disease. And when you think about the fact that this was an epidemic created by the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, they essentially laid the groundwork for this with the introduction of OxyContin back in 1996. And much has been written and, and told about the rise of prescriptions, the, then the, the attendant rise in overdoses and deaths. Now, of course, here in the state, people moved from pills to heroin, now fentanyl, and that's consuming a lot of our attention and time. It is, it is really, really upsetting, I think, to all of us, and particularly those of us in government, and that's why I think you've seen this be at the top of the list for everybody in government the last four years. Before I let you go, I'll have my membership card in the International Association of Political Pundits pulled if I don't slip <laughs> in a little politics here. Watching the rise of Donald Trump and his victory over Hillary Clinton in 2016, reflecting now, it's been a couple of years, what political lessons have you learned from the Trump phenomenon? Well, I think there are a few. One, I think you you really need to, to meet people where they are. And Trump, I think, did a brilliant job of playing on people's vulnerabilities, understandable insecurities, particularly with respect to how they were feeling economically. I mean, the fact of the matter is many people are raising kids um, for the first time as a generation, not knowing that whether they're going to leave their kids in a better position than, than they had when, when, when they came into the world. And that was sort of always the common compact, right, and bond from one generation to the next. Make sure you're doing everything you can to leave things a little better off for those who come after you. And so a lesson, you know, I think you need to speak to issues of health care, um, basic economic uh, stability and growth within your family and opportunity. I think, though, unfortunately, a lesson that we've also learned is that there really is an ability through technological platforms to promulgate disinformation and misinformation. We absolutely have to, for the sake of our democracy, do more to get real news out there, real journalism, community newspapers, community reporting, tell the truth, expose the truth, um, because we've, we've seen this, this, 
misinformation, disinformation campaign really um, have a terrible and, and ugly effect. We also need to teach in this country civics education. We now have a law here in Massachusetts that's going to provide that. I think that's critically important. People, you know, to be part of our democracy and to feel like you're part of the democracy, you got to be educated about how democracy and how our government functions and then what role you play in this. I talked to so many people, John, for example, who want to vote, but actually haven't learned where it is, how you go about registering to vote, where you go to vote. These are basics. And I think that we um, have, a, have an obligation to focus on issues that matter to families, talk about those issues, not make it esoteric, make it real, and also do what we can to get people pumped up about government and their role, their agency in government. You get the government that you deserve, you get the government that you vote for, or sadly, don't vote for. Last thing, with regard to the disinformation, misinformation, platforms for bullying that the internet has turned into, do you believe that the big tech giants will clean up their act without the government stepping in and bringing them to heel through antitrust litigation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I do not have faith in the tech platforms to rein this in. We've seen their reluctance. Um, culturally, they've been reluctant um, to, to do this. It is imperative, John, that aggressive action be taken at all levels to rein in what's happening with these technology platforms. And these platforms need to step up. They really need to step up. They actually have the technology on the front end to address some of this. And it can't be then put on law enforcement or agencies to police. They have the ability to police themselves. It's going to cut their profit margins. Their profit margins are plenty big to begin with. And, you know, they have those profit margins too, John, because they've found a way to monetize, to make money off of our personal information, our likes, our interests, right? So they're making money hand over fist on all of us while allowing all of that to be exploited and doing nothing, nothing to address some of the real issues that you raised about disinformation, misinformation, harassment, bullying, that have really had an effect on our society and culture, electoral politics and the like. We need to get this right. We needed to get this right yesterday, but we certainly need them to be at the table getting this right now. I led a group of state AGs on this issue, calling on them to come and work with us to address this. And calls need to be made to Congress to, to take action now. This is a big problem, and it's not going away. They're desperate to avoid antitrust. Uh, who wouldn't be if you're a big company with control of, of uh, the reins and, and, and so much? So, of lot, course, you're resistant. A lot but of that's... tech executives within the sound of your voice right here, General. Are, are, are you prepared to accept the political consequences I of going after I them? I think we are blessed here in Massachusetts to have terrific tech companies. And, in fact, I've spent a lot of time talking to a lot of tech executives. And, you know, there's a difference between supporting the super cool innovation and all that technology enables and supporting exploitive oligarchies who like, you know, are out there um, finding ways to monetize our, our information and make money for the sake of, 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 uh, of simply making money without, without any care or regard to what that is doing 
to our economy, to our market, actually, um, to our market of ideas, and fundamentally, as we've seen recently, to electoral politics. So I think I'd have the support. I, I, I've spent a lot of time with our tech companies here in Massachusetts as AG, and I have great regard and respect. We should be doing everything we can to support innovation and research. Um, but I think that there can be a common consensus around the fact that there are certain things that have just gotten way too out of control. Attorney General Maura Healy, thank you for joining us here on Studio BZ. Thanks for having me, John. The city is for some glamorous, stimulating No one really stops to think about it until they are in a life-threatening situation, but Boston MedFlight is there when patients need emergency transportation. They care for an average of 4,600 patients a year, which turns out to 12 per day. Now, Maura Hughes is the CEO. Thank you so much for coming in. It's nice to meet you, Maura. Pleasure to be here. The work that Boston MedFlight flight does is so critical and people will see med flight whether it's on the highway during a crash or in a news story but they probably don't realize how it works mm-hmm. you also have ground transportation you have ambulances boston mm-hmm. med flight does uh when when you can't fly or when you need to be on the ground how does this get paid for? I think a lot of people see this and they wonder, how does this work? Mm-hmm. So we're actually a nonprofit organization. And so we that's our mission to take care of sick patients. So we, we transport patients whether they have insurance or not. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we build patients' insurances. And if there's a, um, a, a deficit, you know, it just gets written off. We, we give away $4 million a year in free and unreimbursed care. So I think a lot of viewers might not realize that you're a consortium mm-hmm. of hospitals and healthcare facilities that want to make sure that these patients get to the care they need. That's right. So we were started by a consortium of Boston hospitals in 1985, and we added Leahy a couple years ago. So now there's seven um, academic medical centers that actually support Boston MedFlight's mission. So they really expect us to be um, a extension of their care. So when we come to the side of the road or when we come to the community hospital, we're really bringing that tertiary level care to the patient. And you say that no matter whether a patient can pay or not, you're going to transport them. That's right. From the scene of an accident or if it's from getting them just from one hospital to a hospital that has better care. Mm -hmm. So uh, are there financial struggles for Boston MedFlight where you just aren't getting reimbursed at times? So as every other healthcare organization, you know, we struggle with the reimbursement. So about 75% of our budget comes from billing insurances, but 25% of our budget comes from charitable contributions Mm -hmm. um, and the subsidy from our consortium hospitals. So, you know, we see MedFlight's coming and going and you can only imagine what's going on in there. Mm -hmm. You must have incredible stories of patients whose lives have been saved Mm -hmm. because you were right there. So, you know, again, we're transporting 12 patients every 24 hours and everybody has, you know, a story. Um, But I'll share one with you. Last week, I was um, talking with a mother of a pediatric patient and she said, Maura, I was in a community hospital with my 15-month-old son. He was in severe respiratory distress and it was very obvious that that community hospital was not going to be able to take care of my son. She said, I was so scared. Boston MedFlight comes in. They're calm. Um, They calmed everybody in the room down. They were so competent. She said, right then, I knew that my son was in good hands. Mm. We took him to an academic medical center in Boston. And five years later, he's a healthy six-year-old playing, you know, ice ice hockey with his Mm. friends. Much like an emergency room, on that helicopter, in that ambulance, you're often seeing the worst-case scenario, Mm -hmm. which is why Mm -hmm. there's a MedFlight needed. 
Who is on board the flight and what are they doing during the course of that flight? So on our um, aircraft, obviously we have a, a very, very well seasoned pilot. So all of our pilots are ATP rated. That's basically the highest rating you can have yeah. uh, when you're an aviator. And we have a critical care nurse and a critical care paramedic who are taking care of you. Um, and these, these folks come to us with many, many, many years of experience. And even every year just to keep their skills current because they have to take care of everything. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of continuing education at our consortium hospitals and for our critical care ground ambulances we have um, EMTs who are you know the pilots on the ground for us right and I, I suppose like all ambulance crews you're gonna be dealing with anything from a hideous car crash mm -hmm. to a respiratory problem a heart attack mm. what kind of equipment I mean the extent of equipment you must have on board must be remarkable so our all of our vehicles are basically mobile ICUs. Mm -hmm. Anything that you would find in a um, hospital ICU or ED, we have on board our aircraft and there and uh, all of our vehicles, and they're ready, f you know, to basically deal with everything because they have to deal with everything. Because Leah mentioned sometimes you can't fly, right? Because of weather or whatnot. Weather, so correct. Ground transportation. So we do have critical care ground. So uh, we started out as helicopter only. And in the early um, 1999, we actually started doing critical care ground because helicopters can't fly in certain weather. But then as we evolved over the years, we realized that the helicopters really should only be used for time-sensitive patients. Mm -hmm. So the helicopters mm -hmm. are used for you know, heart attacks, strokes, trauma victims, or geographically isolated, so the, the islands, if you will. And ground is really used for everything else. You are looking for top staff obviously you're saying yes. critical care nurses critical care yes. paramedics that requires an extra level of training yep. is it tough to find uh, a staff because in Boston there are so many great hospitals so many places where talented people can go I'll tell you next to the financial challenges one of our big challenges is finding great staff mm. and you know we're always hiring so if anyone is considering uh, 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 health care um, as, a, as a position they should definitely be calling us anyone in particular field you're looking for so we're looking others? for nurses paramedics pilots you know, uh, maintenance technicians, com techs, admin folks. Um we need them all. And you say there are always financial struggles. Where can people go if they want to help out Boston MedFlight? So um, check us out, bostonmedflight.org. Um, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can learn more about Boston MedFlight. You would certainly want Boston MedFlight to be there mm -hmm. when you need it, Absolutely. right? Or mm -hmm. one of your family We, in our work, we see it over and over all again, the, the work that Boston MedFlight does. Mm -hmm. CEO Maura Hughes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank we you. appreciate it. If there, if there, if well, as any sports fan knows, uh, a lot of, uh, if not a majority of the news about sports doesn't have anything to do with what's going on uh, actually between the lines during mm. games. It has to do with everything ranging from uh, legal issues to social issues. Sports is really a microcosm of what's going on in our culture. And I had a chance recently to talk with Mike McCann, a University of New Hampshire law professor and columnist for Sports Illustrated, who regularly uh, offers some of the most insightful analysis of the legal and economic issues surrounding sports. And this is the guy, Paul and Liam, who made national headlines by instituting a course about Deflategate. Yeah. Here it is, I believe, three years later. That course is still going strong, drawing in a lot of students. I got a chance to go up there to Durham and sit in on one of his early 
Catholic classes. Fascinating. He was one of the people arguing there really was not a great legal case against Brady, though the league had set itself up well against the players union by basically making the commissioner the judge, jury, and executioner. That as unfair as it was what they did to Brady, they were on firm legal ground given the the wretched deal that the players union cut with the NFL. So a lot of uh, interesting stuff in addition to getting into uh, the situation with sports betting, which is coming. I mean, it's already here if you're ready to do it illegally, but legal sports betting is on the way. Mike, one of your newer ventures up at UNH has to do with sports betting. What's that all about? Sure. So, John, we have started an online non-degree certificate program in sports integrity and sports wagering. The idea is that with the Supreme Court's decision last year to allow states to legalize sports betting, we're seeing states, including Massachusetts, including New Hampshire, Rhode Island, all really the New England states, but others, thinking about what does that mean? What, what would be appropriate laws in terms of governing sports betting? And we've just started it now, and it's, it's exciting. Yeah, well, what jumps out at you as one or two of the headline issues that are going to be raised by this emerging industry? I mean, when we think of the integrity of sports, obviously we think about point shaving, you know, Pete, athletes and coaches and maybe even umpires or referees, as we've seen, you know, betting on, on games that they have a hand in. Uh, what, what do you, what's the, the new frontier here? Well, I, I think part of it will go back to that, the, the idea that integrity could be in danger. Yeah. If we make sports betting legal, it will increase the number of people that are betting on sports, increasing the chances that we could see point shaving, that we could see games thrown, things like that. And I think that will lead to some opposition. I think the other issue is if it's legalized, where does the money go? What, will, what budget will it go to? Who is able to get a license to allow somebody to bet on sport? I mean, we've seen that with marijuana, right? right. The, the, it became legal years ago. And it's taken quite a while before people can actually get licenses to sell it. Well, the casinos are frantic to corner the market on this, right? That's right. That's right. And they're probably worried that could you go down to a convenience store to bet on sports? You don't need to go to the casino. Or just whip out your smartphone. Right. Exactly. Which you can already do, but... You, you can with, within... It's, it's, what's the term for it? It's uh, sublegal or... Sublegal. That's a, yeah. that's a good phrase. <laughs> okay. Good phrase. All right. Um, so... Uh, Some of our listeners may know you as the guy who established the course at UNH where you run the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute on Deflategate. And in chatting with you before, this was four years ago? Yeah. I was surprised to hear this is still going on. Why? Because the case itself has long since settled. Yeah, so I, I think part of it is that it's a great illustration of law. And the idea that somebody could be found to have done something that science says he didn't do. And that's a powerful point. I think when we think about justice and fairness, that even though laws are designed to protect and prevent the innocent from being held responsible, 
that that general premise doesn't actually always hold true, particularly when there's a collective bargaining agreement and when it's a more complex scenario. So for law, for undergrad students, they're able to get a taste of law. They're able to see arbitration. They're able to see what happens in federal court. And they're fascinated because it's Tom Brady, right? So it's a great way of capturing students who might otherwise be bored or not interested in a topic when you put it in the context of Tom Brady and Roger Goodell and the Patriots and deflated, why were footballs quote-unquote deflated? Was it science? I mean, it really brings the student into the scenario. The league claimed that what Brady allegedly did, even though there was never any real tangible evidence that he did anything, uh, potentially damaged the game, and therefore they invoked their unilateral power, which the courts ultimately upheld to to discipline him. Tom Brady and his supporters claim that he was the one being damaged. Four years later, was anyone really damaged? I mean, it looks like everyone's making money hand over fist. Yeah, it's hard to see the loser. Even someone like Jimmy Garoppolo is a big winner because he got to play when Brady was suspended, and that ended up leading to his trade and and huge contract with the 49ers. So I think Goodell was probably damaged. I would say, obviously, he still makes all this money and he's not going anywhere. But reputationally, the idea that he's somehow incompetent, I think, is sort of uh, a lingering uh, description of him. A lot of that, I suspect, stems from how he handled the flaky. Now, also more serious issues like domestic violence that right. certainly— the Ray Rice Ray episode, Rice, yeah. Way more important, but— Yet Deflategate is seen as this this story where science was looking at uh, Roger Goodell and he ignored it and that he latched on to his original conclusion in spite of really every scientist that I know that I've seen opine on this claims Brady is innocent. Yeah. I mean, everyone, you, you, okay, there's a 10-year-old kid, right, that just did a science fair study. Right. So not him. Okay. And the, and the scientists, the NFL hired an exponent, not them. And also the NFL is, of course, conflicted in this because the referees messed up to some degree and they work for the commissioner. So you know, we're not talking about neutral people. And even the quote-unquote independent investigation wasn't independent because it was co-run by Jeffrey Pash, the league's general counsel, and the other person was Ted Wells, who the league hired. That's not independent. I mean, I'm a lawyer. You're, if someone says, let me pay you money to go represent me, but be independent, that doesn't make any sense. You write about all different sports, the the flow of stories. People go to SI.com and check out the, the back archive of, of uh, Professor McCann's writing. I mean, your basketball, football, you name it, uh, soccer. Uh, do people in sports big-time athletes, big-time team owners, officials like Commissioner Goodell believe, as a general rule in your experience, that they're above the law? I don't think they believe they're above the law. I I think they believe, they interpret their governing documents to insulate them from scrutiny. So with Goodell, the idea that under Article 46 of the the collective bargaining agreement, it basically gives him any power, anything he wants. And he's going to argue that within that confines, he's able to do what he wants. And that he could say, well, that's the union's fault. They negotiated this. If it's so bad, then they should try to negotiate it out. So from the league's perspective, they, and they also argue that they need this power because they don't want to be going to court to litigate matters one after the other, that it's time consuming, that it's costly, that it's distracting. So I don't think they think they're above the law. I think they think that the governing documents of the league 
allow them to do what they want. Now, that's especially true of Goodell, less so of other commissioners. What about the players themselves? I mean, look, let's stipulate most pro athletes don't ever get in trouble. It's we, we the handful of cases that do occur get a lot of publicity. That's why we talk about it. But let's put it in some perspective. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it, it, is it fair to say that there's a culture uh, in our society surrounding sports, really starting at a, at a fairly young age, starting at youth sports and continuing on up through college and the pros, where athletes are considered a privileged class, where, you know, oh, uh, Aaron Hernandez got in a bar fight down in Gainesville, I guess it was, and the uh, the campus cops or the local cops just sort of escorted him home. And, you know, that kind of scenario occurs over and over again. Is that true? I, I think there's an element of truth. That look, at, look at Baylor and football and the controversy there, right? So I think we have seen a number of examples of that being true. I don't know if that explains how they behave years later when they're adults. And, and, and the Hernandez scenario really is, I mean, this is someone uniquely bad. He had right? issues. I mean, yeah, yeah, he had real time. issues. He's just, just someone who doesn't behave in a way that the, that the rest of us do. I do think athletes can be treated in a favorable way that gives them a sense of uh, being insulated from legal scrutiny. But I would also say, and, and as you noted, most athletes don't get in trouble. Most of them are just regular people. I mean, in fact, I think the data shows they don't get in any more trouble than than men and women of the same age group. So I, I think a lot of it is if you take 1,600 NFL players, yeah, a handful of them will get in trouble. If you take 1,600 employees of a random company, a few of them are going to get in trouble too. So I don't, I think it's just human nature. In this vein, this is not really a legal issue, but um, how do you explain the quote unquote patriot way? And that that slogan or that branding sometimes gets ridiculed. But to me, if you look back over this unprecedented run of success, uh, there does appear to be some kind of a culture, whether it's straight from Bill Belichick or it's a combination of the Crafts and Belichick uh, and maybe mix Tom Brady in there as a proponent of a certain culture. The, there seems to be a way that they do business that is both successful and promotes a level of discipline uh, that other teams just can't seem to match. Do you agree with that? I do, and it's just so striking because the NFL is designed to prevent teams like the Patriots, right? The collective bargaining agreement has a salary cap where players, if, when you have too many good players that reach in the middle of their careers, it's hard to keep them all. And yet the Patriots have been able to overcome that. I mean, the fact that every year they're drafting at the end of the draft I mean, the, the system is designed so that there wouldn't be a New England yeah, Patriots. parity. That was always parity. the big thing. And, and they have defied that in a way that is hard to grasp, that it's hard to, to break down into a science. I do think a lot of it is what you mentioned, John, which would be the individuals involved, that they've set a culture. And obviously, people outside of New England tend not to like the Patriots. I, I think a lot of that is that they're sick of them. They're sick of the Patriots always you know, being at the top. And they're bitter, jealous losers. Let's be <laughs> candid about it. <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and that is uh, the business of teams leaving. Uh, we've been marking the 25th year, or I believe it's the 25th anniversary of the Kraft family's ownership of the Patriots, most successful uh, uh, franchise, certainly of the modern era. 
Um, and there was a point before Mr. Kraft came in and then another point after he bought the team where it looked like the Pats might leave, for initially for Jacksonville, then St. Louis, then Hartford was in the mix. We dodged that bullet, and the rest is history. But now you've got this situation in Oakland where the Raiders have announced they're leaving for Vegas, but not for another couple of years, is it still? Looks like that. Looks like a couple of years. So yeah. where do they play? What is what yeah. is the situation with that? So the, the situation is the owner has, has decided to take a, a much better stadium deal in Las Vegas. And, of course, the Raiders are something of a nomadic franchise, right? They've bounced back between Los Angeles and Oakland several times. And they may be able to play in Vegas as soon as next year, if not maybe a year after that. And in the interim, they're going to have to play someplace else. And right now they're in Oakland. There's also a federal antitrust lawsuit brought by some prominent attorneys against the Raiders and against the NFL, arguing that there was no chance for the city to keep the team, that the, that the league didn't apply its standard for when it's appropriate for a team to be relocated. And in an antitrust litigation, there are treble damages. So if there was, this was ever proven, there could be a huge bill for the NFL and the Raiders. But it, it is, a, it is a, an awkward situation, not only for the players, but also the fans. Let me uh, bring this full circle and close uh, uh, with uh, a little bit of prognostication by you, if you're up for it. Look into the future, uh, particularly now with the legalized sports betting coming in and Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but did I hear somewhere that there's at least some talk about allowing betting in the stadium? Yeah. Is that 10 years from now, maybe even less? Is that what we're looking at as a fan experience where you're sitting at your seat and your your tweets are up on the scoreboard and you're betting on prop bets as the game unfolds? Uh, what, what are sports going to look like in 10 years? Well, I think we'll see more fan engagement, and there's a league that uh, that I've had some involvement with, your, your your call football, where players, the fans can actually call the plays, they vote on plays, and that's this more sort of like taking a, a video game and making it real, and I think we're going to see more of that, more fan engagement, where the fans are either betting or they're just predicting plays that look at the younger generations. They're all on their phones. They're all engaged in something, whether it's social media, whether it's a video game. You know, maybe they should be paying more attention in class and things like that. But, but the reality is that it's hard to capture their attention. And I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility if we see a casino in an NFL stadium. Why not? I mean, if, if, there, if it's going to be legal and you're the NFL, even though you try to litigate this from not happening, they lost. The Supreme Court ruled for New Jersey. And I think we see leagues will pivot quickly to try to profit from it. And I also I think this generation, they're, they're not as concerned about betting. Uh, maybe that will change if there are problems that arise. I mean, we've seen in other countries with cricket where people bet on specific plays. It's really hard to tell if someone's throwing a play, right? It's one thing to see if a player is, tries to lose a game, but players can lose a play on any play. So they can be very difficult to monitor. Well, look, I know I'm going to date myself uh, 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 with this, but if you've ever gone to see High Lie, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is right, really something because right. there's betting. Yep, that's and right. there are the players right there, and they have a big wire cage that the players sit in. And I've witnessed fans, you know, rushing the cage, screaming, livid, you cost me this, you cost me that. And I wonder if that's in our future. Maybe. I mean, I think... I. 
I, I think we'll see fans. You know, the other thing is it brings fans that otherwise wouldn't care, right? That's the thing. If you if you're a Patriots fan, you may not care about the Seahawks play uh, the Cardinals. That may seem like the least relevant game to you. But if you're betting on it, or if you're betting on plays, I mean, it it just changes the degree of fan involvement. Or if you could even maybe even vote on what a play should be. I mean, there's, these are all kind of different ways that that. Somebody will get rich from. And in the end, money talks and everything else walks. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Michael McCann is professor at the UNH School of Law, founding director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute there. Read him in Sports Illustrated. Mike, thanks for joining us on Studio BC. Thanks, John. Conan O'Brien versus the Dreamland Wax Museum. General Manager Bianca Cardoso, a lovely woman, Mm. talks to us about the kerfuffle that erupted over the last week when a fan realized there was no Conan O'Brien wax figure at the museum in Boston City Hall Plaza. So we talk about what ensued. What is this with some outsider daring yeah. to criticize one of our local institutions? This is the thing. <laughs> we, we've, got a, we've got a beef with Conan. Conan yeah. went on a rant mm-hmm. about it and called out Bianca Cardozo, so we got her on the phone right. to get her reaction. Creativity combined with innovations in technology. So a week ago, the latest episode of Conan's podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, came out. He interviews David Sedaris, the writer for most of the podcast. And then right at the end, he reads an email from a viewer named Jean, who asks, after she had visited you there at Boston's Dreamland Wax Museum, of all of these celebrities of Boston, why there was no Conan O'Brien wax figure. Uh, and so then he began to uh, rant, demanding <clears throat> that people write in because this was outrageous to him that there isn't one. Can I ask, uh, was this just an oversight? Uh, you are the general manager. Were you aware? Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we're brand new. We just opened uh, late August 2017. So we've been open for a little bit. A little bit. And we're still growing and still getting wax figures in. Um, a wax figure takes usually 10, 10 months to a year to be done. Wow. That's why we haven't had con in yet. We should say you're located at One Washington Mall. Mm-hmm. Right at City Hall Plaza. City Hall Plaza. You have about how many wax figures at this point? Uh, so right now we have a little over 100. Let's listen in to Conan O'Brien going on a bit of a rant about the lack of Conan at the Dreamland Wax Museum. <laughs> you mentioned that the director is Bianca Cardozo. I would urge our, our listeners to email or write <laughs> Bianca Cardozo uh, at this, what's what's this museum called? It's called the Dreamland Wax Museum. Wow, Dreamland. In Boston, wow. Massachusetts. Dreamland Wax Museum. Well, it does not sound like a dream land to me. It sounds like a nightmare scape. This is uh, an abomination. Okay. It is. And I think the people of Boston uh, should rise up and demand justice. <laughs> so some people did rise up, Bianca. They wrote you. How many emails would you say you received last week? So we definitely received over 200 emails, not to mention phone calls and Facebook posts and Twitter posts. What was your response when you heard this clip? Wow. So I was surprised, but I was glad that (laughs) there was a fan um, incurring about this. So now we can fix this wrong. (laughs) And I'm just going to read 
a little section of the of the letter that you put on your Facebook page. You posted your letter to dear Boston icon Conan O'Brien. From the site of Paul Revere's silversmith shop in Boston City Hall Plaza, we at Dreamland Wax Museum thank you and your caller, Jean, for drawing attention to America's heartfelt cries for your likeness through your podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Yes, we have Whoopi Goldberg along with Elvis and every U.S. president. No, we do not have new kids on the block. Please. She writes, uh, we continue to grow and add wax figures since our 2017 opening and appreciate your permission to add the likeness of Boston's greatest icon. We will address your temporary absence and look forward to working with you to bring your beloved spirit to Beantown. Warmest regards, Bianca Cardozo. Uh, what did he have to say? So he, we got an email from his producer right away um, that evening asking me to um, record a podcast with Conan. So I'm going to take the opportunity to request his permission to add Boston's number one icon to our museum. Wow. So hopefully within a few months we'll have his loved wax figure. <laughs> May I ask, did you not have Conan originally because you just didn't have enough red paint for the hair? or was or would it was it possible the wax figure was going to demand too much attention and get in front of the other wax figures you know you know the other wax figures were just a little jealous about that (laughs) but i guess now we'll have to do it but you say it takes (laughs) takes 10 to 12 months to create a wax figure will he have to fly to a studio to be cast no so it's really interesting um so we'll have um our artists sent out to la uh, and it will take about two hours and they'll take all his measurements and and hundreds of photos of him and then from that they'll sculpture him are there any other oversights at dreamland wax museum is there is there a ted williams uh Larry Bird, are there any others that you need to to make to fill out your Boston roster? Oh, absolutely. We're thinking of, so we had in mind Ben Franklin and Paul Revere, mm-hmm. but I guess we'll just have to cut them, we'll cut them the line and put Conan right in front of them <laughs> before Samuel Adams. And He will take great pleasure in that, that he's mm. cutting Ben Franklin in line. Um Liam and I were wondering, Bianca, are you contemplating a Boston TV news section? Well, it doesn't even need to be a Boston TV news section as much as it needs to be a Paula and Liam section. (laughs) Uh, Local television news anchors? Yeah, we really don't care about any of the other news anchors, (laughs) frankly. Uh, Just us. We would be happy to stand for two hours, be measured, and have our <laughs> photographs taken. But, you know, you can get to that. After Benjamin Franklin, Paul Revere, Conan O'Brien, we're far oh, down the list. You. But we are ready. <laughs> no, we will work it into the schedule. Not that far down the list. <laughs> the people, the Conan uh, fans who responded, you said there was this outpouring of people calling you, emailing you. Were any of them nasty about it or were most people having fun with it? No, they were all they were all so great. I was <laughs> impressed but really happy. They were all really positive and funny and it was just it was just fun. It was a great experience. Well that's great. Well Bianca Cardoso, general manager of Dreamland Wax Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, have fun with this. We're glad that you're gonna be on Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. We'll be listening for the podcast oh, in which you are you. sure to be featured. That is next week, I think that, that will come I out. So, so you'll have to check back in with us. 
after you've Absolutely. talked to Conan yes. and, and let us know how it went. Tell him that the reporters from WBZ are on to this story. We will be following the progression of the from the emails to his wax figure being installed in your museum. This is this is going to be an important developing story and and we won't miss a step <laughs> along the way. I agree. I mean, after all, he is Boston's number one icon, right? I would agree. In, in his a legend in his own mind. In his mind. In his mind he is. No question. Bianca, you're such a good sport. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Leon. So here's our real problem with what Conan O'Brien's message was here, although Bianca was fantastic. Wasn't she lovely? Oh, yeah. And she really was a great sport about it. She took it with a lot of great humor. Mm -hmm. But the thought that Conan O'Brien is trying to pass himself off as a Boston celebrity when he was born and raised in Brookline (laughs) and has not lived there since graduating from Brookline High School (laughs) is deeply offensive. I would argue he is actually more aligned with Worcester, Massachusetts, which is where his mother grew up. His grandfather was a police officer and where his Irish ancestors uh, settled when they came here. Here's the thing. He, He has sworn off his Worcester roots. He was on with Colbert last week. Paula I, was very offended by those this. of us from God's country. He said were on a his on Colbert's show, said, "Yeah, I grew up in Worcester." Mm-hmm. And someone in the crowd, woo, did a woo, and, and he, he said, woo, "Don't woo." Worcester is unwooable. He's Un- ashamed of Worcester. Unwooable. He was he joking said. a bit, but but it, it, it huh. drew some ire Ooh. from the folks of Worcester, including Paul, who grew up just nearby. I grew up nearby. And, and oh. uh, people were very, very mm-hmm. upset with Conan. As if somehow this. we don't know that he bought that hair piece he wears at Spags. <laughs> right. <laughs> when right. they were going out of business. At Spags. <laughs> Here's the other thing. You know, he fancies himself such a history buff yeah. as a Harvard man. Right. She referenced there, she's going to put off. The, Doing Paul Revere, yeah. Ben Franklin, and Sam, Sam Adams. That to me was to the Conan headline first? of this was that Conan, uh, through his through his neediness, uh, was able to uh, leapfrog three giants of See what he did of American history. His assistant Sona will like this. It's yeah. probably very familiar behavior to right. her. Right, she's she's familiar with with this. Perhaps her. his pathetic uh, desire uh, to break into this wax museum is due to the fact he was rejected from the plaster casters wax museum plaster casters plaster yeah casters. is that a thing people of a certain age will know oh. exactly what i'm talking about i'm just gonna leave it right there uh, he is in madame tussauds he, he is in madame out. well he pointed out that he is in madame tussauds which is why he felt it was such a disgrace that sure. he was not in Boston's sure. Dreamland Wax Museum, which and I understand, but you know, to leapfrog, this is so Harvard Paul to me. This, oh, isn't you know, it? And, and, and Liam says this as a fellow Harvard yeah, graduate. Yeah. Well, I was hoping you would mention how that. How is it so Harvard, Liam? In that he his sense of entitlement that he was entitled yes. to be at the Boston Dreamland Wax Museum, mm-hmm. a very Harvard thing to right. go. Oh, how am I not there? This is a disgrace. I should and be now among he gets what he wants. the greats. Really, I, you know, I would go even further. There's another yeah. layer of irritation from my perspective. <laughs> okay. He goes on and on on this podcast about what a big family he's from and how he's yeah. the third child right. of six. Of six, please. Oh, that's right. Paul you are. Paula, that is. You are the youngest. Being, 
of the eleventh child of eleven. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. of very yeah. high achieving older siblings who yeah. make you feel insignificant. Yeah, so, no, no. And we, John and I, and everyone in the newsroom are on the receiving end of that. Well, of course, we've had my to rage, deal with, with your my outbursts, need for uh, it's true. Constant the, the attention affirmation and affirmation and, and, and whenever and free food shows up in the newsroom, <laughs> right. you don't want to get Stand your back. hand between Paula Stand and the back. <laughs> so, you know, Conan doesn't know. He doesn't about know the real struggle. Large family yeah. dynamics being <laughs> one of only six. Yeah. Well, coming in the next 12 months. Conan O'Brien at the Boston Dreamland Wax Museum. Congrats, Conan. You know he's going to make it it a whole thing on his show, too. Oh, of course. He's going to have the cameras there when they fly out to measure him and take the pictures, and he'll just love every single (laughs) minute of it. He will insist, as we said to Bianca, that they they need extra wax for the length of his legs. Some Bostonian. (laughs) Conan, you're probably a Yankee fan, aren't you? Admit it. <laughs> oh, Admit it. That would be really. That, that would, would be, be something really else. awful. No, yeah. we love you, Conan. We really. Yeah, yeah. We, we love, love the podcast. Truth. We do. We do. We yeah. listen faithfully. Yeah. yeah, we really love you. <laughs> <laughs> we really. <laughs> Were we too harsh there? That this was unbelievable. We went from Conan to sports uh, attorney issues to Maura Healy. Great interview. We hear from her a fair amount, John, but she often won't sit for that length of time and go one-on-one. So that was cool to hear that. Well, also, frankly, when she's with me, she's terrified. That's true. <laughs> and she you knows know what? John will go well, a little bit be. scared myself when I'm with her. So it's good. It's she a good, knows John good will chemistry. go for the jugular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, she this knows is, what that's all about. This is the type of stuff we do every week. It's, yes. it's a big mix of things, and we mix in Boston issues and uh, issues that matter nationally. So... Uh, subscribe and share and tell a friend and give us a rating and a review and, and tweet us as well. Let us know what you think. The uh, podcast Twitter handle is at Studio BZ Pod and I am at Liam WBZ. At Keller at Large. And I'm at Paula Eben. And uh, that's it for this week, guys. Pretty nice. And coming up, we'll, we'll be seeing you. I will save my, we're so packed. I will save my pajama pants yes. rant. For next week. For next week. That's a good tease. That's an yes. evergreen. Yeah. That's an evergreen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Liam has well, a pajama don't, pants. Don't tell John about it yet because yeah. I want it to be You want it to be organic. Friend. Organic. Yeah. Okay, so uh, can either of you make it to this ugly showdown with the brutalism? I'm going to Paul is going to come to Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be good. I've been reading up on this guy. He loves I it. I read excerpts from his book. Yeah, I got an excerpt. It goes beyond City Hall. He thinks uh, the uh, John F. Kennedy building is a work of art. 